thank you, Brother Ron. Thank you, Lindsay, and others for leading us in worship this morning. Well, James told me um, that as long as I finish by around noon, uh, we're in good shape. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I've already been warned about those of you who would stand up and walk out if that was the case. So, this morning we're going to look at Philippians chapter 1, and um, I hope you're ready. hope you have your Bible and uh, your seatbelt, because we're going to blaze through it. We're going to look at what God has to tell us from his word this morning. But before we do so, let's go to God in prayer. Father God, we love you, and we thank you for this day. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for, for salvation in your son. Well, we thank you that you brought us together this morning to hear from you. And Father, I ask that you would speak to us. Because Lord, I know and you know, and I imagine the rest of those here know that I don't have anything worthwhile to say on my own. So I rest upon your word. God, teach us through it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, you might think it was appropriate if at your high school graduation, your teacher or school administrator, or principal asked you to live worthy of the diploma you've received. And by this, you would know what they meant. You would know that they, they, they're asking you to display the character and the academic integrity and other things that the school endorses. Your school certainly hopes that you will be proud to have been an eagle or a jaguar, or a mountie, or whatever else. But also, they hope that they will be proud of you as a student there, as a graduate there. And you know that every institution or organization on and on in this world places certain expectations, certain standards for its members, or its students. But although things in this world place certain expectations on all of us, they pale in comparison to the expectation and the call of following Jesus Christ, of surrendering to the gospel. And this morning, as we've already seen in Philippians chapter 1, Paul gives us a call that is seemingly impossible to live up to. So we're going to look at that this morning. So if you have your Bibles, please open to Philippians chapter 1. Just a, just a brief background about the letter of Philippians. Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul. It's a prison letter. He, it was written from prison. Now Paul was, as you know, uh, persecuted physically uh, a number of times for his faith and his proclamation of the gospel. He was imprisoned several different places, one of those being Rome. Most likely, he did write the letter to the church at Philippi from Rome. Now, he writes to them uh, with a close connection. He's fond of them. He knows something about them. If you remember the story in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas were in, um, in Philippi proclaiming the gospel. And there they saw fruit of their proclamation. Lydia was converted, and her whole household was converted, and they were baptized. And before they leave Philippi, before Paul and Silas end up leaving Philippi, the believers are gathered, to get, gathered together there at Lydia's house, studying the word and worshiping God. So Paul 
actually started, we believe, the church in Philippi. So he had a close connection with them. He wrote to them as friends. We see earlier in the letter, verses 7 and 8, he he tells them that he holds them in his heart. So he writes as a friend. He loves them. He writes to tell them of his good spirits. Even though he's in prison, he writes telling them that, that God is using his circumstances, his persecution, for the advancement of the gospel. And then he also writes to thank them for help for their support of his ministry. But primarily, I want you to see that he writes to call them to live as citizens of heaven. You see, Philippi was a Roman colony. They prided themselves on being Roman citizens citizens in a Roman empire. But Paul reminds them that they have a greater citizenship, a greater allegiance, as you and I do this morning as children of God, and that is to heaven. And so he writes to urge them to live up to their citizenship. So this morning, I want you to see that we are called to live according to the pattern set forth in Christ. We are called to live according to the pattern of our Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ. So if we look at verse 27 of chapter 1, this is what it reads. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, this can also be stated or translated, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, or only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. And so he's reminding them of their allegiance as citizens of heaven, as children of God. Their primary allegiance was not in this earth. It was not to a country or to an emperor in this world, but it was to their Lord, Jesus Christ, their Father above. Now, if we backed up in this letter, if we backed up uh, the, the verses preceding verses 27 through 30, our focus this morning, we read this in verses 21 through 26. We read about a sacrifice that Paul has made on behalf of the Philippians, a sacrifice that he has made for them. And you know, you know some of this because this is, this is one of the most popular verses in Paul's writing. Verse 21, for to me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. It goes on, if I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. And on and on. So Paul is saying that because of his circumstances, because of the persecution that he is receiving for proclaiming the gospel, he would much rather leave this world. He would much rather be dead in the body and alive in the presence of Jesus Christ. That's where his heart is. He knows knows the, the, the value and the blessing of being with a Savior. And so he writes to tell them, I would much rather be in heaven. But I know that God is keeping me here on your behalf. So that you would grow in your faith, so that you would mature, so that you would be encouraged and find joy because of me. So Paul has made a sacrifice on behalf of the Philippians. And he's suffering 
for it. You know, in a similar way, Meadowbrook Baptist Church has made a sacrifice and an investment in the lives of you graduates. They have done things to disciple you, to teach you the word of God, to mentor you, to nourish you in your spiritual walk. Please don't let that that sacrifice be in vain. Please, as you leave this place, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now, when we read this, when we read verse 27, I I really do hope that you're taken a little bit aback by what Paul's saying here. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. What? Isn't that the whole point of the gospel, that we're not worthy? That we receive something that we don't deserve? That it's all by the grace of God? It is. And last Sunday, our pastor challenged us with this question from Colossians chapter 2. He challenged us, why do you come to church? Why do you come to church? Do we come to church in an effort to honor our Lord by things that we do to earn right standing before him, to live up to the standard that he has placed on us as his creatures? I love the way that Brother Ron defined grace last Sunday. He said this, Grace is the priceless gift of God that cannot be earned or bought. Grace can't be earned or bought. It's undeserved mercy, undeserved kindness. And if that's true, and it is, then how in the world can we live worthy of that grace? We can't on our own. We do it by the power of God working in us. If you flipped over to chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, we do see that if we're going to live worthy of the gospel, there are things that we must do. We must work at it. It requires effort. Paul says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But then what does he say in verse 13? For it is God who works in you, to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So God is working in us. It's the only way that we can live up to the standard that he set before us. We can't do it on our own. That's why we have the gospel. That's why we had the cross. That's why we had the incarnation. That's why we look to Jesus as our supreme example. Remember the the famous hymn passage earlier in chapter 2 about Jesus humbling himself and coming to the earth and dying on our behalf. He is our supreme example. And so that's why I say that we are called to follow the pattern of Christ and others that pursue Christ. Later in Philippians, we read about Paul encouraging his readers to to follow Timothy and Epaphroditus and Paul himself as they seek to follow Christ. So that's how we do it. We do it by the power of God, and we do it as we seek to honor God. Now, specifically this morning, this is what I want you to see. I want you to see three marks of living a life gospel-worthy. Three marks of living as a Christian ought to live. And by Christian, I mean somebody who has recognized their sin, that they've fallen short of the standard of God. I mean somebody who recognizes the need for a Savior, Jesus Christ, the only way. 
the need for forgiveness in him and has experienced the grace of God and being forgiven in Christ. So three marks of someone like that, someone I hope like you and me this morning, someone who has surrendered to Christ. And the first of these marks is that gospel recipients stand united in the Spirit. Gospel recipients stand united in the Spirit. Did you catch that? Verse 27, after Paul says, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one Spirit. I will know that you stand firm in the one Spirit. That's a mark of living gospel worthy, being united. So graduates and others, I urge you to seek out other believers. Do not try to live the Christian life in isolation. God doesn't call us to. Jesus didn't call a follower. He called followers. So surround yourself as you go on from this place with other believers. People that will hold you accountable. People that will encourage you and show you what it means to follow our Lord Jesus Christ. We're on the same team. What does Jesus say about his followers in John 13, 35? He says, all people will know that you are my disciples. You are my followers by the love that you have for one another. We are called to be united as Christians. We are bonded together by the Holy Spirit of God. Just like a ligament bonds together two bones, the Spirit of God bonds us together as his children. You know, we have differences. They may be family background differences. They may be age differences. They may be personal preferences and interests. But we have one thing in common as believers that supersedes, that goes beyond, that penetrates and goes across all differences. And that's that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've accepted the love of Christ, then you have the Holy Spirit indwelling in you. That's what Scripture says. The Spirit lives in you, and the same Spirit that lived in the Apostle Paul lives in you. And as a result, we've got to get along. We've got to be known by our love. We don't want to be known by our, our disunity. We want to be known by our unity. That's part of the reason that Paul is writing this letter to the church at Philippi. In fact, our Sunday school lesson this morning uh, with the youth was centered around conflict resolution. Because two women in the church at Philippi, Euodia and Syntyche, were fighting. Good women. Women that Paul thanks and praises for their work in proclaiming the gospel, but they weren't getting along. And so we've got to work to be united together with the same message. Our unity is a reflection of the unity of God. And we see that in Ephesians chapter 4. We read there about one Father, one Lord, one, one Spirit. God is united in purpose and in person, and we need to be a reflection of the unity of our Father. So number one, gospel recipients stand united in the Spirit. Second mark, gospel recipients proclaim the faith. Gospel recipients proclaim the faith. You see that in verse 27? I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for what? For the faith of the gospel. Contending for the faith, striving together for the faith. 
So it's for a purpose. We're united to proclaim a message. To strive together for the faith is to proclaim the faith. It's to speak the faith. And what faith is that? Well, you know, it's the one true faith. It's the one faith that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 4. It's the only way. It's not one of multiple faiths. It's not one of multiple ways to God. It is the only way. What does Acts chapter 4, 12 say? It says that salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. So what faith do we proclaim? We, fa- we proclaim the one true faith. And as the one true faith, there's a sense of urgency. We're compelled. If it's the only way and there's people out there that don't know it or don't believe it, then we want to convince them otherwise because we believe it. Paul is so, so focused on proclaiming that faith that if we backed up and we looked at verses 15 through 18 in chapter 1, we'd see that he overlooks bad motivations of some because they're proclaiming the gospel. And we say, wait a minute. I mean, I'm, I've got some pride in me. And I like, to put, I like to point out other people's flaws. We've got to be careful. We have a message to proclaim. And when someone else is proclaiming it, perhaps in a slightly different way, as long as it is true to the message, as long as it is true to the gospel, we need to celebrate in it. The one true faith. Why do we proclaim it? We've already touched on that because it's the only way and because people are dying without a knowledge of it and without belief in it. But there's more to it than that. We proclaim it because we've experienced it. We proclaim it because the grace of God has gotten a hold of us. It's done something to us. We know when we look at ourselves and when we examine ourselves and we look at the world and we see people not living up to the standards set forth in Scripture, not living up to a a life that honors God, we see ourselves. We look back and we realize that we're no different that we were once on the same path headed down a road to destruction, that we had turned our back on God and pursued the things of ourselves, but yet he changed us. His grace reached out and it touched us, and we believed it, and we were overwhelmed by it. And so because we've experienced the grace of God, we go out and we proclaim the grace of God, knowing that those that need to hear it are no worse off than we once were. So because of our experience, we proclaim the message. But we also do it because our Lord commanded it, right? Remember the Great Commission? Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, when Jesus said, I am with you always, now go and make disciples of all nations. Well, if Jesus is our Lord, and we say that he is, if he's our Savior, if he's God, if he knows all things, then we want to obey him. The the single most important mission that he gives us in Scripture, we want to try and to strive to live consistently with that message. He commanded commanded us to. Now, I'm a firm believer that, that all Christians are missionaries. Every Christian is a missionary. A call to surrender to Christ for salvation is a call to be a missionary in his name. Now, we often make the distinction between missionaries and ordinary Christians. 
And there's something to be said about those that go out, that pack up and that go out to other places to proclaim the good news of Christ. They are missionaries, most definitely, but so are you. We are missionaries. Graduates, I want you to see this morning that you are missionaries in a unique way, in a somewhat special way. Because here you have been at Meadowbrook, and you have been nurtured, and you have been taught, and you've come to this stage of your life where you are going to go off somewhere else. You're going to go off to college somewhere else. You're going to invest your life somewhere else. So you are being sent out from this place as a missionary with a harvest field. What harvest field? Harvest fields of cafeterias, of classrooms, of dormitories, of apartments, places of employment, on and on and on. So we urge you to strive together for the faith of the gospel as you leave this place. We urge you to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. So we've seen that gospel recipients stand united in the spirit and gospel recipients proclaim the faith. Third and finally, we see in this passage that gospel recipients stand courageous against opposition. Gospel recipients stand courageous against opposition. Verses 28 through 30. Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved in that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. What struggle is that? That's opposition to the gospel. That's why Paul is in prison. That's why he's faced beatings, persecution, verbal and physical assault, opposition to the gospel. And when we read something like this, if you're anything like me, your temptation is to say, oh, well, they faced that opposition then, back in the old days. But what about us? What opposition are you talking about? Well, you will face opposition to the gospel. We're promised in Scripture that we will. Jesus says this, doesn't he, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he's talking about the Beatitudes, and he says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil about you because of me. Perhaps some persecution is a sign of faithfulness to Jesus. But at this time, it would also be appropriate to mention that there are people around the world, specifically in parts of Asia, and in Africa, that are facing the same type of physical persecution that Paul and other believers were facing in the New Testament. And so we've got to be creative and find ways to encourage them and to pray for them through the midst of that opposition. So what opposition might, might you and I face? It doesn't look like any time in the next few years that we will be beaten for our faith or locked up for our faith, but we will face opposition Perhaps you'll face intellectual ridicule in the classroom or among peers for your faith in the gospel, for, for believing in something so simple, ridiculed for having a naive outlook on life. Or maybe you'll face criticism for failure to participate in certain activities. Most definitely, Following Christ bears witness on the way that we live our lives. We see that all throughout Scripture. And there's certain things that we cannot participate in because our allegiance is to Jesus. So perhaps you'll face 
criticism for that. Then also, we all face temptations from within that are contrary to the message of Scripture, that are contrary to the message of God's Word, to the Gospel. Temptations such as immorality, excessive guilt, depression, pride, on and on. And we've got to be on guard and ready for opposition because it will come. We see here in verse 29 that both belief in Christ and, you catch this, and suffering are gifts of God. Look back at verse 29. Paul says, For it has been granted to you, it's been given to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for Him. Now the readers of Philippians have already heard in chapter 1 about the boldness of some based on Paul's imprisonment. Paul writes to encourage them and say, some have, have sharpened their faith, their, their witness has become much stronger because they've heard of the persecution that I'm facing. Well, maybe our witness should be strengthened when we see and hear about persecution that our fellow brothers and sisters are facing because of their faith. Now, what's the source of our courage? Why be courage? Just be courageous? No, we have reason to be courageous. And that's because we have confidence in the truth. If we believe the word of God, we know that Jesus is the way. That, that the sacrifice made by Jesus on our behalf and his resurrection from the dead is the gospel. And so we're confident in it. And because we're confident in it, we know that our primary allegiance is to our Lord. And we also have hope. We have hope of eternal life. We have hope of a relationship with God now through Jesus, intimacy with God, of right standing before God. We have the confidence to approach Him in boldness because of Jesus. So we're courageous because we have confidence and because we have hope. I want you to know this morning that living gospel worthy is always worth it. It's not always easy, and we don't always live up to the standard, but it's always worth it. You might ask, well, what about retaliation when we face opposition? Well, Peter talks about that, and he encourages his readers to live such good lives among the pagans, among unbelievers, that they see your good deeds and they glorify God on the day he visits us. So we don't always, we don't just witness with what we say, but we witness with what we do. Now, do you see any pattern here with the call Scripture gives? Following the pattern of Christ means living humbly in service, in love, with proper orientation and perspective to the things of this world. Our own comforts become far less important as our commitment to the proclamation of the gospel grows. Living gospel-worthy is to follow the pattern set forth in our Savior. It is to live as any genuine recipient of the grace of God must live. It's to receive the gospel is to submit to the Lordship of Christ. And it's to do these things that we've looked at this morning, among other things. To submit to, to Jesus is to to be united as believers. It is to proclaim the gospel and it is to be courageous when we face opposition. Church, I ask you this morning, have you lived gospel worthy? Are you living gospel worthy? Graduates, 
Will you live gospel-worthy lives? So that as your home church, we may see and hear about you, may hear that you are standing firm in the Spirit, striving side by side as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. I truly do hope as graduates that you will make your alma maters proud, that you will live up to the, the character that your school has endorsed. But even more than that, I hope that you continue to give Meadowbrook Baptist Church reason to be proud of you because you're conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. In closing, I ask us all to remember this. We're not called because we've lived worthily, but we live worthy lives because we've been called. It is the appropriate and the necessary response to the grace of God. Let us live in light of who we are. Amen.